Welcome to Outspoken Voices, a podcast by and for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer parents, people with LGBTQ parents, future parents, and everyone else who is part of our family journeys. I'm your host, Emily McGranahan, and I am the Director of Family Engagement with Family Equality Council. Telling our family stories can be liberating, uneventful, isolating, and even dangerous. It has definitely felt all of those way for me over the years. In each new situation, we have choices to make. Do I keep it to the bare bones of biology and legality? Conception with a donor, second parent adoption, contacting my donor. Do I dig deeper and talk about my parents breaking up, taking a steps back in parenting, or how frustrating it was to feel like the spokesperson for all things queer in my town? I often have to ask, is this person or space safe enough for me to share my truth? All of this goes through my mind when deciding when and if I will tell others about my family. I am so excited to talk with someone today who took a big leap to tell her story in a very large way. We're talking today about how we sort of bridge those gaps of our queer homes and the rest of the world and how and why we tell our stories. So Molly Pearson hails from Lincoln, Nebraska, and currently resides in St. Louis. She's pursuing a dual master's degree in social work and social policy at Washington University, focusing on LGBTQ plus policy and community building. As a second-generation queer woman, she is currently developing an oral history podcast project on her family's queer legacy. Molly is a member of Family Equality Council's Outspoken Generation program. In November 2017, she told some of her story through Campfire, where she and a cohort of fellows workshop stories and performed and discussed them with an audience. Thanks so much for for talking with me today, and uh, so we can just jump in. Who is in your family, and how was it formed? So my family was made up by um, myself, my sister, my mom named Annie, my biological dad named David, and um, I call him my stepdad, but that's not really the right word, Um, and his name was Paul. Um, And they were formed um, when my mom married Paul. And he was openly gay, and she knew that. But they decided to get married anyway, um, largely to kind of appease my mom's parents because they were living together and they were best friends. But quickly, what started out as kind of a, hey, let's do this sort of impulsive thing, it quickly became a very real partnership, um, albeit a platonic one. And when my mom realized that she wanted to have children, she spoke to Paul about it. And because they were such great partners, he said, you know, I don't want to be a primary father figure, but I support you in your choices and I'm here for you. So meanwhile, my mom had a very close, uh, gay, openly gay friend named David who really wanted a family. And so while married to Paul, she had kids with David. Um, so then my sister was born in 1979 and I was born in 1987. And how has uh, some of then the the shape and then the makeup of your family uh, changed over time? My own story of who uh, were my parents and primary caregivers when I was born are very different than who I had throughout my life and then who's in my family now today. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So our family was very directly impacted by the AIDS epidemic of the 80s. Um, my biological dad died when I was two of AIDS-related illness. And then my mom um, also died of AIDS-related illness when I was seven. We went from having three parents to having one parent. We were suddenly a single-parent household. Um, even though Paul, um, earlier on in the 70s when my sister was born, he was not prepared to be a father. By the time that my mom passed away in 1994, um, I think that the HIV and AIDS epidemic was really sobering for him. Mm-hmm. And he had experienced a lot of growth in that time, and his priorities had just shifted. So he gave his word that he would finish raising my sister and I. But that said, um, I mean, he was a single parent, and he wasn't exactly planning on this. Mm-hmm. So he needed a lot of help. Um, and so I was really, I mean, I was raised by like this queer village. Um, <laughs> I would go for overnights at our friends' houses. The queer community and, and individuals within the community, whether we realize it or not, we have really big hearts because we have to. Mm-hmm. And we have to be open to to loving in a really radical way. But I think particularly in the Midwest, um, because you know there are smaller pockets of communities, I think that that definitely... Um, lends to that sort of family feeling that, hey, we have to be there for each other mm-hmm. because because we have to be. So I'm going to encourage everybody who is listening to finish finish listening to this episode and, and hearing um, everything that you're sharing with us today, Molly, but then also to, at the end, go and listen to your absolutely incredible storytelling experience that you had through campfire what was that experience like sharing and exploring personal stories like with the group and especially stories of having lgbtq family yeah well thank you um for your kind words it was a really incredible experience Mm. um and one that I'm so, so grateful for. So Campfire is based here in St. Louis, um, and it's a storytelling event, but it's interactive. So if you're familiar with the Moth uh, mm-hmm. storytelling podcast, it's kind of like that, but with like audience participation and facilitation built in. Each season has a theme, and that theme is framed in a question. So the question that I had to answer was how did you find your place in the world? Um, and so I approached that question by talking about navigating this line between this safe queer space in my family and then this big, scary, heteronormative world outside of our family mm-hmm. and kind of straddling the line between um, between those worlds. Yep. And it felt so good to do this on a stage because the narrative was in my control. Mm -hmm. So there's a really supportive workshopping process leading up to the event. And my initial draft looked so different than how my final talk turned out. Mm -hmm. And I kept having to remind myself, like the goal of the event was to answer the question how do you find your place in the world? So I really like crafted the story to answer that question. Just that editing process reminded me 
that I can, you know, cultivate other opportunities to give my family a voice, um, particularly um, giving a voice to my biological mom and dad. Um, I so badly want people to know them mm. <laughs> and to know um, to know what they were up against and how hard they loved and um, the choices they made to create a family. I am actually in the process of collecting oral histories from Paul, who raised mm -hmm. me, um, my sister, and other members of our our chosen family um, to take a deep dive into um, not just queer families, but also like queerness in the Midwest. I think we so often think of, you know, we think of Stonewall, we think of gay liberation, and then we think of San Francisco. But I think so much of what goes on in flyover country, um, I think gets lost in the shuffle. So one thing that was really interesting it, that you had mentioned in, in your campfire talk was how different the school experience was through you for you as you grew up. So your elementary school experience, your middle school experience, and then high school was just so different. I grew up in Massachusetts, and a lot of the stories that you shared from elementary school and middle school like, sounded so familiar to me. Mm -hmm. And but when you talked about high school, it sounds like from what you had shared, it was a much more positive experience. You had teachers and administration and, and clubs and policies that like acknowledged that queer people existed and was even like positive and affirming. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just so different. Oh my gosh, I had none of that at my school. Mm. Um, what was that like to go from having either silence uh, or teachers turning a blind eye to uh, homophobia and discrimination to ha being in a in a place with an administration that at least felt or seemed to be more accepting. Yeah, it changed everything. Um, so I went to the oldest high school in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, I think when I was going there, it was like already a hundred years old or something. Um, and they had the um, first gay straight alliance in the whole state. I remember the very first week of classes, we had this big, like, welcome assembly, and there was, like, a band playing, and they, like, were playing music, and it was beautiful, and they called up people, like, if you wanted to come up on stage and dance, you could, <laughs> and, like, before I knew it, all these kids were going up on stage and like there was a football star, there was a theater kid, there was a cheerleader, there was a skateboarder. And like one of my new friends that I had just made that week, an out gay kid were up there and they were all dancing together, like in a circle and holding hands. And I just like <laughs> lost it. I started sobbing because I had just never, I never thought that I would have a moment like that in school. I just, I sort of just had this really cathartic moment of feeling seen and feeling comfortable and feeling safe. And so I talked with, um, with the, this handful of teachers that I felt especially comfortable with and 
they were just so clear in saying, I'm so glad you told me, I want you to know I'm here for you. Um, you know, they, they were just present and them just listening made all the difference. It just, it changed everything. And I think that really speaks to, um, how the culture of a school environment can, can make such an impact on an LGBTQ student or children of, of queer parents, um, and can make all the difference between feeling included and not. But I mean, I would even go so, so far to say that, I mean, it could in certain communities, I mean, I think teacher response and administrative response could mean a difference between life and death. Mm-hmm. Um, cause we know that, uh, suicide rates are higher among LGBTQ teens, um, and so I think that creating that environment and that very intentional culture um, is so, so important. Oh, yeah. The first time I had a teacher who I had teachers who in private had talked with me. And so I had like come out to, about my parents or my parents had both shown up to a parent teacher conference or something like that. So they knew and I could talk with them about it. Mm-hmm. And it was all positive. You know, it was a lot of like especially I got a lot of like, oh, my sister is is gay or this or that. I had a gym teacher when I was about 10. My gym teacher like took me aside and was like, I have a lesbian sister and she and her partner want to get pregnant. Like, what should they do? And I was like, uh, I'm stretching and 10. <laughs> like, not your best person to talk to. So I like tried to be helpful. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I was in eighth grade yeah it was about 14 where finally in class one day a teacher said like people had to stop saying like that's so gay and faggot like Mm. that was like I had a teacher stop and say we're not going to use derogatory language Mm -hmm. and this is why Mm -hmm. and the teacher is probably maybe knew I wasn't I wasn't out about my family to that teacher I hadn't talked to them yet Mm -hmm. but I like felt so sick and like I like cold sweat I was just so excited <laughs> and I just yes. like, my body like completely shut down and <laughs> and afterwards I had I stayed behind in class to thank the teacher just I just felt like this teacher like just needed to know that like that is ch- like that is huge for some student and yeah. I like tried to stay back and thank her and all I did was like sob just yeah. just lost it because no yes. adults other than my parents had ever like stopped another kid and said like you can't say that and here's why and this is why this matters and on you know unfortunately that was kind of the only time that ever happened you know we never even acknowledged authors who were gay in English classes like it just never came up again and then I had some really negative experiences and when I would try to bring it up and Mm -hmm. like advocate for myself uh it was a lot of teachers didn't hear it you know even though everybody else in the room heard uh, and finally, at one point, I like insisted I got moved out of a class. I was in like a gym class with a kid who the semester before had been like relentlessly bullying me and a closeted friend. And I just insisted that I just grabbed him and was like, do you want to get out of this class? And he's like, yep. So we just walked over together. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. this kid has said X, Y, and Z to me. I refuse to be in a class with him. Uh, and the and like that was it. And it, that's like kind of what it took for anything to happen. No punishment for him for like anything that had happened. Of course. But, you know, finally they were like, OK, well, just don't, you know, be quiet about it, please. Uh, yeah, I, I give so much uh, admiration for schools that take that extra step to make things not just like 
you can talk to me 101. Like I have a sticker on my door. Like that's great. And we appreciate teachers who do that. But to go that extra step to be so affirming is really inspiring. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know that I, especially being older and having conversations with people I'm sort of meeting, I'll often tell them a little bit about myself or my family. And then they'll like, they'll just be curious in a, in a very kind, you know, coming from a, a place of kindness, but hmm. you know, wanting to know more, but it is, it's still sometimes I'm just like, okay, <laughs> this is what we're going to do. Yep. We're going to, we're going to do this emotional labor today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you uh, about donor insemination right now right, and like contacting right. my donor. Yeah. Um, I totally relate to that. Not just about having queer parents, but also, um, regarding HIV. Mm. Um, so sometimes, you know, it, not all the time, but sometimes people do try to ask me if I am HIV positive mm-hmm. and they, the way they ask it is usually in a really timid way. They'll be like, so are you or do you do you have it? And you can see how uncomfortable they are. And they should be uncomfortable because it's no one's business. Mm-hmm. Um, but when people ask, I usually do answer. Um, I am HIV negative and I... I have conflicted feelings about telling people my status, but ultimately I feel like it can be used as an educational moment. I think a lot of people genuinely believe that all children born to HIV positive mothers are born with HIV. And so I use it as kind of an educational moment. Um, I mean, even before sophisticated antiretroviral therapy was available, the chance of transmission during childbirth was still relatively low, but especially today when HIV is managed and when it's undetectable, it is perfectly possible to, to have HIV negative children. Um, so I kind of use that as like an educational moment. And then usually people are like, Oh, I had no idea. Mm. Um, but what's asked more often more often than my own status is people want to know how my parents got it. Um, mm. Because it's like the way the conversation goes, typically what, what comes out first when I'm getting to know someone is, Oh, well, you know, my mom died when I, when I was young. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. How did she die? I say AIDS related illness. Oh, Oh, well, so and like they have so many questions Mm -hmm. like you know was she dating a bisexual man um was she a drug addict was it a blood transfusion like Mm -hmm. and I think maybe it's unconscious but I think in wanting so badly to know how it was transmitted people are inadvertently making a value judgment I don't know if you get this now as an adult at all but that that follow-up question that I often got oh you're you have your moms are gay. Does that mean that you're gay too? Uh, mm. You know, the, the first time I was asked that, I was probably mm-hmm. eight and mm-hmm. like was continued to be asked that for many, many years. And it, it was interesting. I know that at least when I was about 16, the question came in the form of like, oh, 
so are you dating and they mm. want like they want they so they kept it open they didn't just say like oh mm-hmm. raised by lesbians are you a lesbian too but that's what they were it, getting at like i i know what that question was and yeah it, it, is there do you, is there more delicacy or less delicacy you know when people ask uh, sort of either of those questions to you um i think there's more now i think mm. with age um you know, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar ages as us. And as people grow up and um, just learn how to be better, <laughs> people don't just like walk up to you and be like, so are you a lesbian? Because, yeah, first time it happened to me, I was in second grade. It was in the lunch line. Yeah, like this kid asked me and I said, well, I don't know. Like, I'm eight. I don't know that I can, I don't know that I can answer that right now because like, I actually knew what lesbian meant, Mm -hmm. but like this bully, like he didn't, he just knew it was like, you know, something weird or something gross. And, um, so when I said, you know, I don't think I can answer that. I I'm eight. I don't really find myself, uh, attracted to anyone right now. He then turned around and screamed to the whole lunch line, like Molly's a lesbian. So Yes, I would say that there is more delicacy now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the bar to start at. <laughs> right. Um, people don't really ask me now at all, now that I really think about it. And I myself do identify as queer. And it, you would think that being raised in the household that I was raised in, that would have... I would have figured that out much, much sooner, but I actually didn't because Mm. I think I felt a lot of guilt. Actually, I felt like because of, you know, pressures of like respectability and that, that pressure to prove that LGBTQ LGBTQ parents were just like every other parent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can still, be queer but raise straight kids and I I felt this pressure to like prove that sort of um and I but I also felt some feeling of guilt that um queerness was kind of handed to me like queerness was absolutely on the table and I actually remember once when I was a kid I was maybe in like third grade or something, I remember like trying to balance, you know, what I was being taught at home that, you know, all identities were welcome and celebrated and, and it wasn't a big, like, it wasn't a big deal. But then externally outside of our family, I was getting these messages that, you know, people who were coming out were being, you know, disowned by their parents Mm -hmm. or, you know, we're being murdered. Um, and so I remember one day I asked Paul, I was like, so what would you say if when I got older, I told you I was a lesbian and he was just kind of like, Oh, I would say that's great. Good for you. And then (laughs) after like a pause, he was like, you know, your mother so badly, wanted you and your sister to grow up to be lesbian psychics. She was really into like new agey, like crystal stuff. She was like, yeah, he, 
she she totally wanted you to grow up to be like lesbian psychics and you know but we'll see (laughs) (laughs) everything was on the table when I was a kid Mm -hmm. like all the possibilities were just as legitimate and valued as all of the other possibilities and so I recognized the need for clearly defined labels because some people feel comfortable falling into those but personally I I just feel free Um, And to me, the word queer really encompasses that. Why is speaking out and telling your story important to you? Oh, my gosh. Mm. Um, Well, like I mentioned earlier, I think a big part of my motivation is giving my parents a voice Mm -hmm. because theirs was was taken too soon. I often find myself wondering that if the Reagan administration had acted sooner, if they would still be alive today. And so I just think about um, the importance of fostering change. And in order to change, to create change, we have to change the story. We have to tell stories that reflect our real experiences. And that involves a lot of of vulnerability and that involves risk. Um, But I ultimately think that's what it takes to reach people. When When I really step back, it's not even really about me. Again, it comes back to my parents and um, wanting to share the profound love that they carried, um, not just for each other, but for our community. And I think that as a society, as a culture, we have so much to learn from queer people. Um, I think that taking a really strengths-based approach to talking about queerness and talking about the beauty and, and the openness and the love, I think is something that can be really transformative. So that's in a nutshell, that's kind of what motivates me to put these things out there. Um, and you know, there, there will always be sort of that voice in the back of my head saying like, Oh, no one really wants to hear this. Like you're just, you know, you're just another person, um, with the internet, anyone can get online and say whatever they want. Um, but I know that when I found, um, the family equality council, for instance, um, when I, I literally stumbled upon, um, um, upon you all last fall, I said, Oh my God, I didn't even know this existed. And I got so excited. And, um, this podcast, I mean, that, it's so affirming to hear other people's stories. So I think that I really have something to perhaps offer other people only, even if it's only, you know, one person, I think that that can make all the difference. Um, and another project, um, that has really been transformative for me is the recollectors. Um, Mm -hmm. it's a online storytelling and support group for people who have lost parents to AIDS-related illness. So that's been another space where I'm kind of like, wow, we do need these stories. Okay, I can do this. So um, so yeah, it feels really good to finally be um, more public with all of this. Yeah. I was so excited to have you join as a member of the Outspoken Generation program with Family Equality Council. I think that's one of the important things that 
the LGBTQ movement hasn't always had as vocally is people with LGBTQ parents who are are young or are now adults speaking out and sharing stories. I know that the narrative for a while that was used and was useful was sort of my our families are just like yours. Like we just want the same rights and and my family's just like yours. That that like we're not scary. We're not different. And mm-hmm. it really has changed now in a, in a in a good way to say mm-hmm. like yeah, my family is different. It is yeah. not like yours. There are major differences and it's beautiful and it's yeah. complex. Uh, and let yeah. me just tell you how beautiful it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, I think about so much of the messaging around um, marriage equality mm-hmm. and, you know, love is love. Like, yes, okay, but I think that there are many different um, shades and nuances and variances between, ki- like, types of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Yeah, queer families are different. Um, And I think that that's such an important shift um, in messaging to really embrace. Because like I I said, I think that um, society at large has so much to learn from queer relationships, whether they're romantic relationships or community relationships. Um, Like, I do kind of have a queer agenda. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and um, I think that that's, that's a really exciting thing that's kind of um, shifting right now, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, of course. Again, thank you for joining us today. This podcast is brought to you by the PRX Podcast Garage. Their community hours program gives studio time and training to Boston nonprofits developing a podcast. Learn more at podcastgarage.org. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Outspoken Voices. You can find Outspoken Voices on our website, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Family Equality Council at familyequality.org and on Facebook and Instagram at Family Equality and on Twitter at Family underscore Equality. Until next time. Remember that love, justice, family, and equality is what brings our families together.